and people came to this nation. They were on their knees there on the shores of Cape Cod, begging God to bless the nation. And God did. Yes, we have flaws because we are sinners. But this nation was blessed like few nations in the world. And now that we are rich and prosperous, 80% of America is not in church today and they don't care to be. They're not here to worship the living God who has given them the very breath that they have. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, From Here to Eternity. Yesterday, we studied the contrast in the lives of the rich man and Lazarus, and today we will look at the contrast in their deaths. Luke chapter 16 verse 22 says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Don't think for one skinny minute you can earn or merit heaven. If you think that, you'll die and go to hell. It says you're still lost. But once you are saved, if you're available to the Spirit of God in you to work and minister through you, in eternity, God rewards you, and so your works follow you. And so Jesus is saying, when it fails, they, that is, those who have gone on before us, which, by the way, gives us a little glimpse into heaven. I have often been asked in the Bible line or at funerals, will my loved one recognize me? And the answer right here is yes. They will receive you. They, oh, there's Joe. I'm here because Joe gave to that particular outreach and I heard the gospel and I'm born again in heaven because of the way he used his money. So Jesus is not saying, of course, that you can spend your way into heaven, but he is saying that as the steward of the funds that God has entrusted to you, you're to use it wisely. Now, with that said, he goes on and he applies it and he makes three specific applications. Stay with me. This is important to understanding our text and the two are often divorced. And he makes three applications, first concerning the matters of money. Notice, if you will, he not only tells us in verse 9 that we can send our money on ahead in verse 10, he reminds us that the measure of how much God entrusts to us today is measured by what we do with the money we have. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now you'll notice he moves from the future to the present because he wants us to understand the relationship between our current day management and our future entrustment and even things right now. So it's important to ask, what does he mean by a very little thing? And what does he mean by much? Well, contextually, obviously, the very little thing is your financial matters. And the much concerns your spiritual matters. And so the Lord is saying that the way you manage your financial matters is indexed to what God will entrust you concerning your spiritual matters, things that really, truly matter. And when a son of light, when a Christian, when it's a believer, I think the uh, King James says children of light, equally legitimate. If we're careless, if we are unprincipled, 
if we are not careful with what God has said, then he really can't entrust to us greater spiritual opportunity and responsibility. That's crystal clear from verses 11 and 12. Notice, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Now, the true riches that Jesus mentioned are not what you have in the bank. It's not your retirement account. It's not your house or your land. It's everything that you have that money cannot buy, that rust cannot rot, that thieves cannot steal. It's treasure in heaven. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, or of another man's, the King James says, or someone else's property, the Net Bible says, or another translation, the CJB says, what belongs to someone else. If you've not been faithful in the use of another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, you will notice if you have some of these other translations, these additional words are in italics because they're not contained in the Greek text. And so with great precision, the New American Standard in the ESV just says, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's. And I think that's important because contextually here, there's a double entendre. He is dealing with the stewardship of what God has put in your pocket. When we think about stewardship of our gifts or our time or our talents or the stewardship of the church that the elders are given, Paul says. We're saying, this is not my church, this is Christ's church. This is not my money, it's God's money. It's not a 90-10% relationship. Well, 10% is God's and the other 90 is mine and I can do whatever I want with it. It's all God's and we are to use it carefully. And if God owns it all, and if we've been faithful with the money that he's entrusted to us, then he'll entrust greater things to us. But if we haven't been faithful, who will give you that which is your own? You see, when we use what God has given us, he gives us true riches. And some of us have very little impact for the kingdom. We have very little authority with lost people. We have minimal influence even sometimes with our own children because of the way we steward the things that God has entrusted to us. And so the monetary treasures down here that God has given to us, I don't care if they're small or big. You think, well, you know, you have to have a lot to make a difference. Look, the average American is richer than 80% of the people on the planet. We don't even know how much God has blessed us. But like Israel who went into the land, and God says when you get in there and you enjoy cisterns you didn't dig and houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant, don't forget me. And people came to this nation and they were on their knees there on the shores of Cape Cod begging God to bless the nation. And God did. Yes, we have flaws because we are sinners. But this nation was blessed like few nations in the world. And now that we are rich and prosperous, 80% of America is not in church today and they don't care to be. They're not here to worship the living God who has given them the very breath that they have. And so the monetary treasures that God has given us down here, be they small or large, will affect what God will entrust to you in terms of responsibility and ultimately your eternal reward. And as we've seen in this series, even authority that he entrusts to you during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Now, this is important contextually 
to the account that Jesus is going to give of the rich man who dies and goes to Haiti. Because throughout his teaching, he makes it clear that there are people who are listening in and they're called Pharisees. And he indicts them with being in love with money. Now stay with me, there's these matters of money, there's these matters of management, but there's this matter of masters. He gets more pointed as he moves to this narrative section on hell. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It comes down to a question of masters, as we just saw, the unrighteous steward who modeled the opposite of what we are to do. It comes down to those who are listening who are lovers of money. It comes down to the rich man who dies and he goes to hell, not because he's rich. Some of God's choicest servants in the scripture are incredibly wealthy. He goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. It's very simple. Either God masters the money he's entrusted to you or it masters you. There's really no neutrality. Remember the rich young ruler that Christ confronted? He said, well, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I do this, and I do this. And he didn't really see himself in need of a savior. And so Jesus comes to the 10th commandment, and he shows that he's a covetous person, that he loves money more than God, and that's what's keeping him out of the kingdom of God. God loved the rich young ruler. He wanted the rich young ruler to be saved, but the man couldn't be saved until he saw himself the way God sees him as unrighteous. And God loved the Pharisees. He wanted them to be saved. Most notably, one of the most famous key leader Pharisees of the 6,000 plus in the first century, most of you know him, Nicodemus. You'll meet him in heaven someday. Even in Acts 15, you see Pharisees coming to faith. And so Jesus is convicting of them of their sin because he wants them to come to a savior. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They were listening. They were scoffing. They were deriding. The word scoff means to turn up one's nose. It literally means uh, to smell, to stink. They had stinking rotten theology. And they were scoffing at the Lord Jesus. They were mocking him. In verse 15, he said, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. It's one thing to justify yourself in the sight of men through smooth words or a charismatic personality or hypocrisy, but God knows every heart. We can fool man, but we cannot fool God. And of course, the Pharisees were known for fooling man. Jesus unfolded their hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount and the way they gave, the way they prayed, the way they fasted, only to be seen by man. And then in Matthew 23, he gives that series of woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You have all these standards that you lay on men, but you don't follow yourself. There were scoffers. By the way, there's another scoffer in the scripture who's saved. You know him most famously as the thief on the cross. And then Jesus wants them to know what his father thinks of their value system. Notice, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Detestable. This is the word that means smells. 
What they did was rotten. It's detestable in God's sight. As a general rule, if you see something that the world is just enamored with, it's detestable to God. Is God against money? No. When people are enamored with it, is God against you watching a football game? No. But most people are enamored with it. Is there God? And on and on we could go. Verse 16, Jesus brings it down to where these men live. They thought they were so super spiritual. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Jesus said the law and the prophets were were preached, proclaimed through the last prophet of the Old Testament. Who is the last prophet of the Old Testament? John the Baptist, of course. He dies prior to Pentecost. The law and the prophets, and this is an interesting statement, were proclaimed until John, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. The Pharisees wanted to come into the kingdom. They just didn't want to come in God's way. They were forcing their way into it. Listen, it's the king who determines the means of entrance. But like many people today, they were high-minded, they were unbroken, they were unbent. They thought they were righteous. Look, there are people who will come to church today who think that they've done God a favor because they're here. So they tried to force their way into the kingdom. We're coming our way. And their way, of course, was not God's way. Their righteousness, like yours and mine, is is a filthy rag. And unless we are gifted by grace with the righteousness that God himself has, that can only come through the death, burial, and the resurrection, we'll never see the inside of heaven. And so here are these men who honored God with their lips, but they were unwilling to come the Lord's way. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? They're the most holy men. How can we ever surpass them? And Jesus pulls back the veneer and shows what a fake, phony righteousness they have. And so they tried to change God's law to satisfy themselves and their guilty consciences. And so Jesus makes this statement in verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. You can try to manipulate the law, and they did it not only with their view of money, but as the illustration that follows, they did it with the way they viewed marriage and divorce. This verse, look at it, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You see, these self-righteous Pharisees claim to be righteous. Remember there in Luke 18, Jesus tells, it's a parable of a, of a Pharisee, goes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this scumbag tax collector over here. They claimed a righteousness that was not true. And so they hid behind adultery. They made it legal. Let's dump this woman and get a new model. Jesus said, you're divorcing your wife. You're marrying another. And while you may think you are righteous in the sight of men, 
You are unrighteous in the sight of God. And again, Christ loves these people. These people can be forgiven. And so now he goes for the jugular with what follows. And so he contrasts two men, a lost man, Lazarus, and a rich man, Mr. Dives, we'll call him. Notice three contrasts. First, the contrast in their lives. The contrast in their lives. Roman number one, if you're taking notes, you said, I wondered when he was going to get to the outline. <laughs> we're almost there. We're, out, we're actually three quarters of the way through the sermon. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. I should tell you sooner or later, because you will hear it, sometimes this rich man is called Mr. Dives. And rightly so, because the word rich is from the Latin text, dives. And so remember, for a thousand years, all the clergy across the world studied one translation of the Bible, and it was Latin. And that's why we have all these Latin sayings behind me on the stained glass and on front of the pulpit, because much of what the church teaches is summarized in some of the great Latin terms from the Latin language. With that said, here's this Mr. Rich Man. Some call him Mr. Dives, but he didn't live in any dive, I promise you. The Bible says he was habitually dressed in in purple, in fine linen. Now you see how wealthy he is by the way he dresses first. He has an outer garment and an inner garment. The outer garment is purple. The inner garment is described here as fine linen. Purple was a very expensive dye to make in the first century. And it was really a status symbol to wear anything purple. Usually only the rich of the rich wore such a garment. It came from either the matter root, which took a tremendous amount of root to create something purple, or it came from this uh, shell that I have pictured here. This is the murex cell shell. It's just a small little shell. And from that shell, they would get literally about a half a drop of purple. And it took several thousand shells to get the purple dye needed in order to make a purple garment. That's why when King Horacerus wants to, uh, uh, many of you maybe read during the Feast of Purim just recently, the book of Esther, and he puts a purple robe on Mordecai. Remember that? Uh, it was in a very, very expensive robe that he allowed him to wear. Or Herod Antipas mocked the Lord Jesus, and he threw a purple robe on his back. And so, furthermore, the text says he was rich, he enjoyed himself in splendor every day, and it's seen also by his inner garment that's described here as fine linen. Now, in English, this word um, that's used here, busos, can be used of, uh, literally, it comes in English as busos, is to describe a muscle that's attached to a rock with these fine threads. But it still has the same original idea. But in, in Greek and in Latin, it was used to describe what we might call the finest of Egyptian linen. In fact, in the first century, they called the inner garment, if it was fine linen, woven air. Only rich men wore it. He was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, notice further, enjoying himself in splendor every day. Now the word splendor can be used in different contexts here, of course, in terms of eating. In fact, some translations like the ESV renders it, he feasted sumptuously. Words find their meaning in context. When I use the word cool, do I mean the it's cool in here this morning, or he's rather cool towards me, or hey, that's cool, or 
The word trunk, what's in front of an, an elephant, what's behind a car, what's at the base of a tree. Context is everything. So here, the splendor, the word that's used, is used of someone who feasted sumptuously. And what a contrast between him and the poor man. Now, it didn't mean that people in the first century didn't feast sumptuously, but the average person only did it once or twice a year. Maybe like we would on Thanksgiving or Christmas. But this guy did it every single day. And the poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So Lazarus, the Bible says, is laid at his gate. And this gate says a lot about this rich man. He had a gated house. To have a gated house in the first century was to be an extremely wealthy person. There's only two gated houses in all the New Testament. One, of course, is in Acts 10, when uh, Peter goes to the home of a very wealthy man, Simon the Tanner. We're up on his roof. He has a vision to show that God is going to bond together Jews and Gentiles into a single body called the body of Christ. The other place, of course, is in Acts chapter 12, where the church met for a prayer meeting in the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, who gave us the gospel of Mark. And if you remember... um, Peter is in prison, and James the apostle had his head cut off. So they're in this earnest prayer meeting in a gated house. It's no typical Jerusalem crackerback, cracker box. It's a very wealthy home. That's what this guy is in. So here's Lazarus, and the text says he's laid at the gate. I couldn't help but read this and come to my mind what I read in Acts 3. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And so uh, this man had some kind of congenital defect, we're not told. Maybe he had severe club feet, we're not told precisely. But the text does say he was lame from his mother's womb. He never knew a healthy day. His legs were limp and spongy like a dish rag. And so what did you do with such a man? You laid him at the gate. Why? Because he could only do one thing. Beg. Why could he only beg? Because of a theologically driven precept that was false. And I've discussed this with you before when I taught John 9. Do you remember in John 9 when the disciples saw this man who is congenitally blind, blind from birth? And they asked him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? It was a well-established, popular teaching of the day that if you were born with some kind of, quote-unquote, malfunction, but God doesn't make mistakes. He uses even the fall for his own glory and all the challenges that come with it. But nonetheless, the popular teaching was if you were born that way, it was either because of your parents' sin or your sin, your sin in the womb. And so they're asking, Lord, what's the case with him? Did his dad and mom sin? Or did he sin in the womb? Now that would seem to be a terrible punishment that you were born blind because of some sin your parents committed or even that you committed in the womb. And they took a verse from Exodus 20 out of context where it speaks of the iniquity of the parents going to the second and third generations. I have a whole sermon on it if you want to study it. 
But what it meant was even if you could come up with some kind of employment by which you could make money, you were a marked man. You weren't allowed for such employment because you were viewed as soiled and used goods. So what did you do? You begged. Lazarus was laid at his gate, and that shouted volumes to any first century reader. His plight is that of a beggar. Further, we're told that his body was covered with sores, probably due to malnutrition. Verse 21, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He just wanted a few scraps, few bits of food, few crumbs. They probably just threw it out like throwing food out for the stray cats in the neighborhood. Maybe one of the servants had compassion because this man certainly didn't. Hey, give these leftovers, give them to Lazarus. Add to that, dogs were coming and licking his sores only to add to his misery. So here are these two men about 30 yards apart, but they are worlds apart in their lifestyle. That's the contrast in their lives. Secondly, let's think further about the contrast in their deaths, the contrast in their deaths. Look, if you will, now at verse 22. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. By the way, the word Lazarus is Eleazar in Hebrew, and it literally means God helps. And it may be that the reason, if this is a parable, that Jesus names a person is he wants to underscore that God helps, that God sees, that God sees the plight of every person on the planet, that God cares, and he wants to underscore that truth. In either case, Lazarus dies, and some angels come, and they carry him away to Abraham's bosom. People may not have cared for him in this world, But God cared for him. God loved him. And he sends some of his angels. I've done literally hundreds of funerals. I know over 500. And over the decades, people have asked me, well, my my mother, she died alone. I wish I could have been there. Or my, my daughter, she died alone. My little girl, she died alone. No one dies alone. Not among the people of God. God sends his welcoming angels, and they carry us to that place of rest. rest. And in this case, it's called Abraham's bosom. It's also known as paradise. It's also known as Sheol. It's also known as Hades. Now, remember, every Jew, virtually every Jew in the first century didn't read the Hebrew scriptures. They lost their ability after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. So what did they read? They read the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament... Whether it's righteous Hades or unrighteous Hades, it's the same word. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades. We think of the word Hades, and we think of it negatively. Today, the only way to think of it is negatively, because only unrighteous Hades continues. But in Jesus' day, there were two compartments to Hades. There was righteous Sheol or righteous Hades, and there was unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. There was Abraham's bosom, which is a beautiful picture of the place a believer would go. Why? Because of who Abraham is. He's the father of us all, the apostle Paul says, and he's three times in scripture on both sides of the Bible called a friend of God. He was a true believer 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 027. If you missed any of our series, don't forget that you can download the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app, you can download messages to listen to anytime, anywhere. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.